welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, you'll join journalist Geraldine Doog in a conversation with Judith Brett, biographer, historian, and an emeritus professor of politics at La Trobe University, as they have a frank and galvanising discussion about Australia's coal addiction, as outlined in Judith's new quarterly essay, The Coal Curse. A quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. To introduce Geraldine, here's the host of the event, Readings Events Manager, Christine Gordon. Let me introduce you to someone who absolutely does need not need an introduction at all, Geraldine Duke. Perhaps something that you didn't know if you aren't in the journalist world is that only a couple of years ago she was inducted into the Australian Media Hall of Fame. When I put my eyes on her tonight, I only felt it sort of a great comfort to have someone that I feel like I've been with my entire adult life. Geraldine, over to you. Such a pleasure to introduce you. And thank you, Christine. You have been with me all your adult life, which says something about my age. But look, we'll just leave that aside. Uh, thank you very much indeed. It is Geraldine Duke here, and I'm delighted to be at this special readings event to speak to Judith. And I'll put my glasses on. This is vanity, uh, vanity catching up with me uh, as we uh, talk to uh, Judith about her quarterly essay, The Coal Curse, I'll get the exact title right, Resources, Climate and Australia's Future, which, I mean, it's hard to think of a more timely topic. And of course, Judith started this, as you'll hear, with the bushfires raging, and she's finished it with the pandemic raging. Um, so these two emergencies, you, you could say, share some common threads, and they both illustrate, I think, pretty starkly that the systems that we have taken for granted need quite a rethink. And of course, it does both show the value of listening to experts. In the coal curse, Judith Brett charts the price of, as she sees it, of not listening or of listening only to the loudest voices. I think that's even more pertinent. The, the lobby groups, the political opportunists, the vested interests. And really, in, in Judith's um, inimitable style, it's an effort to understand, really, what brought Australia to this point, you know, a prosperous, educated country with strong democratic institutions. What, it, what brought us to a point where we seem unable to talk sensibly about the challenges we face, about the wicked problems, economically, uh, politically, and, uh, and socially. It's very frustrating. So before we start, let me introduce Judith to those of you who don't know. She's an Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University. I have been interviewing her for years. <laughs> She's an award-winning author. Her biography, The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon, took out the National Biography Award in 2018. And her other books include the recent From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, to the Democracy Sausage, and she's written three previous quarterly essays focusing on Australian politics. Now, she is not one of those who's going to bombard you with um, sort of academic uh, turning on a, a pinpoint. That is not her style. And there's a gorgeous quote that... Um, uh, uh, we found from her. I taught Australian politics, she said recently, to the Garrett, 
um, uh, journal for 20 years to first year students. That was a really good training ground for writing non-fiction and Australian political history because I've had to keep the attention of a lecture theatre full of 18 year olds. <laughs> so with that in our mind, Judith Pritt, hello and welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Geraldine. And might I say, I'm absolutely thrilled to be being interviewed by you. You're probably, of all the people I've been interviewed by, you're oh. my standout because you always actually respond to what I say rather than moving down your list of questions. Oh, well, thank you. That's just putting me, <laughs> putting me on notice now. Because it is, right. a, it is a, no, I'm really, I'm delighted that you think that. Um, because I do, what I like about, uh, just to hand you back a compliment, is that you like the nuance. I, I really value that. And to me, that you, you genuinely wrestle with some of the wicked problems that emerge. And I think right. you do that here in the coal curse. Now, I, I take it that's a play on the term the resource curse, is it? Yes. Well, when I pitched this uh, quarterly essay idea to Chris Fike at the end of last year, I was going to call it the resource curse. And after we finished it, he said, look, I think coal curse is, is a catchier title. You know, alliteration is always, mm -hmm. always good. And, and so that's it. So it was actually conceptualised in terms of the resources curse. This is the idea that countries that rely very heavily for the export of primary, for, for their export income from primary materials have certain sorts of characteristic problems. So that's what, that, that's where I started, I guess. Thinking... We're blessed in some ways, but that blessing can become a curse. Well, the yes, the the blessing has got a, has got an underside, if you like, and um, and and it was it was you know I mean it came out of thinking about why are we at this terrible impasse about developing a proper energy policy for this country, and and the climate wars that have been going on for ten years. What's and I've always been a bit reluctant to just lay the blame at the feet of particular individuals who happen to be, you know, stupid or venal or whatever, you know, um, that, that, it, that it's the fault of, of the deficient political leaders. Yes, that's true, but that only gets us so far. It seemed to me that behind, behind this was a longer history of the fact that really since the 19th century, Australia's economy had been shaped by the fact that we rely so heavily on the export of primary commodities. We began with wool. And then it, and and then along comes minerals, and it's now minerals, and that this has made it hard for our political elites, you know, we've to see the way forward. I think, you know, that is, there was a sort of rationality for the defence of coal by the coal lobby in terms of its economic contribution. It's just that we can't afford, you know, the world can't afford to keep burning fossil fuels as we know. Yes, so that it's because you t use this term um, farm and quarry. Um, that that's what that's what we have been good at, and I've yes. been talking about things we dig out of the ground, and we've been very good at it. Of course, uh, uh, I suppose in a way, what I get from you is that we haven't parlayed that into more. It, yes, it could have been more. Is that what you believe? Well, look, the problem is, and and so in a way, Keating put it really well. You know that Australia. Um, we, it's the weakness of our manufacturing sector that was really the problem. We got we Australia could have just been a country that exported wool very efficiently to the world, and if it did this, I mean, it would have only had a small that would have only been able to support a small population. 
So during the 19th century, and particularly in Victoria, when they needed to find jobs for the gold, all the people who'd come in the gold rushes, uh, they did that through building a protected manufacturing sector. And then we did that again, big time, um, after the Second World War, when again, we needed to, we wanted to grow our population. If we wanted migrants to come here, we had to have jobs for them. Where were the jobs going to come from? They were going to come from manufacturing, which would be developed behind tariff walls. And the key thing is that that manufacturing sector was developed for the domestic market. It wasn't developed with an export focus. We were going to keep on exporting wool um, and then we would make cars and washing machines and clothes to, for ourselves. Now, that worked in the, in the 1950s. It worked to a little extent in the 60s, but was starting to work less um, because what we ended up with was a manufacturing sector that was really falling way behind world's best practice. And when, uh, you know, the next moment, if we want to jump forward, is, is in when we get the Labor government in 1983 and the commitment to starting to deregulate, to make, bring in more competition into the economy because that's to, to drive efficiency, to get better products. And the Labor government starts to dismantle the tariffs. And the main game, what Keating was hoping to do, and, and people like John Button, they were hoping to develop an export-focused manufacturing sector so that instead of it just being the farm and the quarry, uh, we would also be, we'd still be exporting, you know, food and wheat and wool and minerals, but we would also be starting to export what are called elaborately transformed manufacturers. Mm. Um, and that's what, that's what they wanted to do. And it, it worked for about 15 years. It worked, you know, up until 2000s. Our manufacturing capacity was expanding. We were exporting, starting to export more elaborately transformed manufacturers. But then along came China, the right, you know, the industrialization of China. And it became, if you like, the, you know, the world's manufacturing center. And so that in a way, we, we opened up to the global winds of competition. And in fact, they just blew our manufacturing sector away. So it's now about our workforce in manufacturing is less than 7%. But then on the other, the other side of that, we got this benefit from the rise of China, which is that China became a market for our minerals again. So, you know, we boomed, the, the mineral boom mm. kicked in and we became rich again and we sailed through the global financial crisis on the back of our mineral exports. But all at the same time, our manufacturing sector was getting weaker and weaker. And as we all know, in you know, 2014, was it, or 13? Abbott and Hockey shut down the car industry. So we've now got very little sophisticated manufacturing. Yes, but of course, you know, that whole de debate about the car yeah, industry, yeah. was it worth, it had been so propped up by staggering amounts of subsidy. I was really stunned when I realised quite how much government yeah. money had gone in. And I was prepared to accept that it actually employed people. Uh, and I, I, I owned that idea for a while. But then I thought, why aren't we seeing more yield from this? Like, why aren't we seeing more sophistication emerge from this industry? Uh, so I thought it was a genuine dilemma that you don't. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a dilemma. And also at the time, like uh, Toyota, I think we're starting to, we were starting to get some export, some of, some of the components and cars. 
um, and, and motor components from the motor vehicle industry. Um, but our dollar was high because of the minerals and that was making it really hard for our exporters. I think one of the arguments is that the car industry maintains levels of skill and knowledge in advanced manufacturing in the country and in the economy. And so we lose that as well when we lose the car industry. Um, so, you know, other countries support their car industries as well. I mean, it, look, you're right, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult argument, but um, now... Because economists we, would say, of course, that is a distortion. I mean, that's, the class, that's their classic argument, that these, are sorts of, these sorts of investments where, which are not straightforward are often distortions and that, that money can be better used. Yeah, well, maybe. But, I mean, what it's meant is that now we've got fewer than 100,000 skilled metal workers in the, in the country, you know? So if we want to rebuild our manufacturing, the skills base has been really depleted. And I think one of the things that the pandemic's done is it's, um, it's made us aware of how little we make here. You know, there was one factory making... PPE. Protect, you're making masks, you know? Um, so let me ask you this then, because um, I do want to get back... Well, I'd, yes, maybe we should go to World War Two because you did make the point that there was a boom during World War Two, and it was this amazing um, ingenuity on display within Australia. Yeah. Um, and we had, of course, the extraordinary crisis, and we that we thought that the Japanese were going to invade us, and we were cut off from our traditional uh, supplies. So, but we still didn't develop an export mode then, did we? But there was a choice that was made. The, the choice that was made was that, that, that we would develop manufacturing to supply the domestic market. And now that's partly because we were relying on foreign firms to invest here. They were, um, so they're not going to be um, supporting us, if you like, to then start exporting in competition with them. You know, we, we used foreign investment. We delivered a domestic market to them. They developed the, um, the manufacturing capacity. My reading of it is that we actually just kept the tariffs there for too long. That if we'd started in the 60s mm. to make the moves that, that, that Keating and Button and Co made in the 80s, we'd be in a very different place. But we had, you know, John McEwen very committed to the, to the tariffs. And it's then that we really, that I, that I think it's that period from the 60s onwards needed to start earlier. And were there not sophisticated, um, imaginative people involved when you look back? Like, why, why didn't they start to, like the Swedes, for instance, did, you know, uh, develop Volvo? Why didn't they, why didn't we do that? Well, it was partly the theory was that we would replace imports. I, look, and, and the trade unions were, were, were very committed to tariffs. It was like all sides it was sort of bipartisan support it was propped up by the manufacturers thought it was great and the unions thought it was great and and i mean my feeling is with when you look back at history there's a lot of the time the politicians of the day are sort of they they they've they've been shaped by the assumptions of earlier generations things that once worked and that's what they keep doing until the last war. yeah until they get to a point when it when it breaks and in a way that's you know, in the, in the middle of the 80s, it was all coming apart. Mm. And I think we're probably at a similar moment now where a lot of assumptions have been so changed by what's happened. Um, this is not just us, is it? Like, this is a this dilemma is that was shared yeah. by quite a few countries, isn't it? Is, is, am I right there? 
about the ta- well i think we probably stayed dependent on tariffs for longer and uh, but i guess more. yeah but i guess we've stayed very, very wealthy i mean the other thing to say about about our export profile is that um there was once there was some success in diversification not with manufacturing but since 2000 with services with mm. international education and with tourism and that was that was a really great contribution to diversification. And these were highly skilled, particularly the international education. Um, but, you know, the pandemics put a big question mark over the future of that. Yes. Um, I did want to quote you that amazing Harvard University Centre for International Development, uh, which ranks economies and assesses their potential for growth. And that was last year. And it was a bit of a, it sort of landed yeah. like a, <laughs> a little bomb. Yeah. And they use um, a range of measures, a, a diverse export economy as an indicator of collective knowledge. And they had us, mind you, became very controversial this, uh, we rated somewhere near Senegal and Pakistan <laughs> right. very much. Now, they didn't include services, you see, you know. We they didn't, and it yeah. was a bit naughty, but they said with the headline, you know, Australia is rich, dumb and getting dumber. Do, do you think that? I, look, I, when I read that, um, and that was one of the, th- the kickstarters for thinking about, about this essay, really, is I could see where it was coming from, and it's, the, it's, it's our... It's the fact that we don't have a sophisticated manufacturing sector. Like we, when you look at the manufacture, you know, you can drill down in the ABS statistics and of the 7% of the workforce that are in manufacturing, a lot of them are making biscuits. You know, they're not making, they're not making sophisticated things. You know, they're in, they're in food processing. That counts mm. as manufacturing. And so, like, what are Australians really good at making now? They're, it's all those cooks on television. You know, I thought there's, there's something... Mm. It, it's not, you know, th- th- and that's, I think that's very worrying, you know, that, that really that there's the construction industry because th- that has to be made here. Um, th- that there's a narrow, and that's what the, what the Harvard Index was, was capturing was this narrowing of the range of skills that are being deployed in our economy. Or now, imagination be- by the sound of it. Yeah, but because it wasn't including services, you know, it was missing the fact that we've got this very sophisticated education system and also our medical knowledge and research is extremely sophisticated and that's world leading but really our you know csl is our biggest that that's our world leading you know that's where we do we do have um global clout and global skills well in fact and just moving on because one of the reasons why you think this has happened if i'm reading you correctly is that we have this extraordinary economy built on resources and you say, and this is where your, your, your writing is very interesting, that it's virtually been weaponized this, uh, this industry. So let's go to some of that. Okay. The mining industry says it, they are essential. It is essential to the economy. It brings in money. It creates jobs. It, it's got us through very difficult times, the GFC. Yes. Now, it affects elections. We'll come to that. Do you, in, on your assessment... With, now that you've been looking at it, do their arguments stack up? Look, their arguments stack up a little bit, but not as much as they say. You know, what the mining industry, you know, firstly, it doesn't employ very many people. You know, it employs 2% of the population, of, sorry, of the workforce are in mining. So, and it's, it's never employed very many people. So it needs to convince the broader electorate that their interests align with the interests of mining. So, 
the mining industry has been extremely successful in sort of fending off challenges to it, anything that might disrupt its freedom of, of action, freedom of movement. I mean, in the, and one of the things that I, I, I talk about in the, in, the, in the essay is the way it did that with land rights when that came along in the 80s. You know, it, it very successfully made sure there was no, that Indigenous landowners and then native, native title um, holders didn't get any sort of veto over mining. And that's why, I mean, in a way, that's the backstory of what happened with the blowing up of the, Rio, of the mine by Rio Tinto. It's the fact that always it's possible for there to be a government override the wishes of the Indigenous owners can be pushed aside if the national interest is seen as, as being more important. And mining has very successfully aligned itself with a lot of the elite, a lot of perceptions of what the national interest is. Yes, well, I mean, as a West Australian by birth, of course, this yeah. is even, very, even more pertinent um, because that you fundamentally grow up in WA knowing that the riches in the ground support so many of the yeah. lifestyles that we have. And you actually say in your, uh, your essay, there was a report commissioned in 1973 by Rex Connor, the famous Rex Connor, Labor's Minister for Minerals and Energy, who wanted to look then at what contribution mining made to Australia's welfare. And the results of that report are really quite surprising. Can you run through them with us, please? I don't know whether I can remember them. I mean, he was, well, I suppose the point was he was very... Tom Fitzgerald was the It was Tom Fitzgerald, did. that's right. And he was very, he wanted to question whether or not the social, the social contribution of mining was as great as they claimed it to be. Um, and the, he said they hadn't quite convinced the Australian public of this, and this turned out to be a very important. Yeah, because at the time there was there was starting to be you know much more well well the the, the um, Whitlam government had committed itself to land rights, yeah. but also there was worry about foreign ownership, and there was worry about the environmental costs of mining, which you know, so because we've got a, an environmental movement beginning. And, and this, this report, you know, it was a, was a turning point for making the mining industry think we have to actually work pretty hard. Yeah, we've, we've got a, you know, our social licence is, is, you know, perhaps not as secure as we thought it was. We have to work hard with a public relations campaign to convince the Australian people that we are actually central to their prosperity. And then you start to get this, this um, development of a sophisticated public relations ca um, mm. campaign, which we then see being brought into bear to, to derail the Labor's uniform land rights legislation. It, it is odd, though, because it, it shouldn't, even if they do all of that well, it shouldn't have precluded some people in this country of ours getting really excited about sophisticated manufacturing. It shouldn't have, should it? I mean, I, I wonder why there was this great gulf there or vacuum well, I think some people do. It's just that, you know, you need a consistent, perhaps, research and development policy, proper. Um, and I think, you know, like, when, when things were starting to work under Labor, Labor's always been a bit more committed to industry policy than the coalition has. People like so John when, Button. Yeah, so John Button. So, so when, and, and, and Kim Carr, for example. So when the, the how... Howard won in 2006, there was a bit of dismantling of the sort of industry policy that was in place. Um, but, but even so, you know, it's, it, it went along. I think it was, it was really China was such a big wham to, 
to manufacturers. And, and so what a lot of them did was say, you know, they kept design functions here, but had things made overseas, you know, had things made in China. So, and, you know, to hear Malcolm Turnbull, he would say, we have got lots of innovative people here. It's, it's partly about scale. I mean, that's what seems to be the story with the problems about getting Australian um, manufacturers involved with building the submarines. Some of them have the skill. It's whether they've got the scale that seems to be part of the question. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's a real puzzle, isn't it? Because you've got yes. this amazing fossil fuel uh, benefit um, and it's, you know, yeah, well, arguably. And I would say, too, that our mining technology and stuff is very sophisticated and we it export is. some of that, you know, so we're very good at mining. Um, and a lot just... of people have learned sophisticated project management skills and so on. That's and, right. And, you know, yes. so I, yes. I do. Yeah. That is quite true. It's just, and I mean, I remember there was a huge debate in WA years ago when I was reporting on all this. Yes. We'd, we'd dig up bauxite and we, and we had, uh, we could have turned it into alumina and we did a little bit um, uh, and aluminium, yeah. but it was expensive. It was perceived to be, it couldn't compete against other countries, allegedly, that had actually done some of that work back in the, um, the 60s and 70s post-war. So it's just, again, I'm, I'm intrigued as to whether you've, uh, you know, whether mining is the, it's mining's fault and this amount of money coming in. I, no, I don't, look, I don't think it's mining's fault. It's, uh, uh, so much as the fact that the fact that we were making the money out of mining meant people got lazy. Mm. You know, I think, I think it's, it's more and complacent. It's more that, I mean, because that point about you, that you're making about the capacity to make aluminium, I mean, that's one of the, the possibilities that, that Ross Garno in superpower points to. He said, if we can develop at scale renewable energy, which will be cheap using wind and sun, um, we could start doing some of that processing of our minerals onshore and, and develop a more sophisticated economy that way. And I so think... If there are so... If it is only 2% of the, of the workforce, yeah. um, and even despite such a public relations campaign, I mean, things like this win elections. They, they, are, they are very, very significant, aren't they, as drivers of Australian opinion? Why? Well, they win elections in certain places. I mean, like I do discuss the 2019 election, which, you know, Labor lost, I think, basically in Queensland, you know. Mm. Um, and it, it was the successful weaponisation of coal and turning of that into something that was about Queensland's regional identity. Mm. I mean, I, I think that the um, anti-Adani convoy the Greens was an extraordinarily politically naive and misguided event because that's it. It basically allowed coal to become a, a signifier a of a, well, a signifier, yeah, a victim and a signifier of a symbol of of Queensland's independence. And we don't want you Southerners telling us what to do, you know, because it, it, you know tourism is and and agriculture are being damaged by by the coal mining. So it wasn't it wasn't really, you know, as if it was in the interests of all those people who voted for it. So it has, has been successful. And I think that's the only election that I would say that, that really turned on it. Um, right. But it even, 
I mean, I think you're right about identity, a real regional identity. Yeah. It also it does also signify jobs. You know, the Hunter Valley. Um, is, yeah, there's there's forty thousand well people. Jobs it, too, there's, yes, there's forty thousand people employed in coal mining in Australia. There's about twenty thousand in oil and gas. You know, there was that's about forty thousand. I think it's around the same number as were employed in the car industry in well-paid jobs. So. Let's not get so overexcited about the jobs in coal mining. You know, there's a lot. But, but what, I, what I find interesting is that these are male, well-paid jobs. They're unionised jobs. They're a particular, you know, sort of... And, and they're in the... They're in re, the regional. They're, in, they're, in, they're somehow... They're mas, there's a sort of masculinism about these jobs that I think... Um, tweaks a lot, of, a, a lot of chords for many Australians. They seem like real blokes out there, you know? Mm. And, I wonder and, whether it also, I'm just listening to you, wonder whether it also suggests to the people who defend it so much that there's so much emotion in it, it's interesting to watch, whether it's almost like a marker boy of Australian confidence that if you took if you took that away you know and you used your argument well you got rid of the car industry why not get it you know it's uh, equivocal to coal that they would say well what would we be is that what you're also getting us to consider what would we would we be would we be have we got that ballast yeah is that part of it well i think there's a sort of like a gender thing i mean i i was on the drum the other night they when i was talking about this they got a coal miner on and he said, well, and we don't want to be, you know, pulling beers in, 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 in tourism and making coffees, you know, as dismissing as if these are sort of weak, girly sort of jobs. You know, there's, there, there's a, like, it's like some jobs matter more than others in the public discourse and somehow the coal has been very successful in making its jobs matter. But, um, I mean, that's why I think that um, Ross Garner's argument in superpower is so brilliant because he says well if we could build renewable energy you know facilities you know um, they can be done in the regions and they can it, it'll take a little it while but they can replace the these jobs and they and and they can support communities in regional australia which and i do think you know australians want to see as many people living in regional australia as they can we want the country to feel full of people not not as empty as it you know so we don't want we don't want to drain any more people out of the regions. So does there need to be another? Because you must have heard uh, that the um, opposition leader Anthony Albanese made a big pitch mm. at the press club today, basically offering a form of bipartisanship on precisely, well, not precisely this, but on the notion that we've got to stop just useless ongoing argument about uh, our energy supply and we've got to start looking at the development of other energy uh, yes, he, yes. they're prepared to go for carbon capture and storage as long as it's we also look at low emissions technologies now can you see a public relations campaign that could be could be um could pivot on that is that exciting does it, does <laughs> well, it lend itself to, to that type of PR campaign. Well, it has seemed to me that, you know, renewable energies have been knocking at the door now for, you know, certainly for half a decade or so. And there's a lot of excitement behind that and innovation and the prices come down much faster than was anticipated. There's all sorts of things happening with battery storage, with the possibility, you know, I mean, it gets a bit technical for me, but there is a, a real pressure there. 
But in terms of the coalition government that we've had, there's been this, this sort of just blind ideological blocking to that. Now, I do think that um, with COVID-19 um, and, the, and the really good bipartisan consensual response that, that, that Morrison's led to that, that perhaps there's now a moment of bi where bi more bipartisanship is possible. So, and because I think, you know, the possibility with renewables is, is exciting. Now, I'm going to start calling for, for questions if people want to think about that. Just, in a, you know, I'll go a little bit longer and then I'd love to hear how, uh, how you respond to, um, to Judith's analysis. You say that both major parties stand to lose voters over this climate war. Mm -hmm. In what way? Do I? Yes, you do. <laughs> yes. Well, you, you, you say it's, I think you basically say it's not of the future and that both are sort of, in effect, sort of trapped. Uh, well, I, look, I suppose what I do think is that the, the coal lobby, in a sense, has, has sway in both, in both parties, which is where the, this, well, while we've had this sort of terrible um, impasse. Uh, and I think both parties have been damaged by this, this impasse. I mean, the, it seems to me the last decade of our, Australia's politics have been a pretty sorry decade. You know, we, we and um, I quote Alan Kohler um, as because he said, and, and I'd thought this myself for a long time that we economic reform was stalled because everybody was just arguing about the about about climate. It was like we couldn't we couldn't talk about anything else, um, and the way climate scepticism became an identity marker for many right. people within the coalition, I think, has been, was extremely damaging. I didn't become, do that in Labor, but there were still people in Labor because of the links to the union and the coal mining and things who, you know, in the Hunter, Joel Fitzgibbon in the Hunter Valley, there's, there's you know, real concerns there. But we, it's, so I suppose the hope is that we've, we've now seen evidence-based policymaking in relationship to um, to the pandemic and we've seen scientists there medical scientists at the elbows of our politicians after a decade where science was being denigrated that perhaps that's now over and we can start having scientific knowledge and expertise back in the centre of our policy making again. Well, it has to be said that already, you know, in response to uh, Mr Albanese's sort of remarks, I think it, the Greens and I think Greenpeace sort of said, oh, look, um, you know, don't, don't be careful what you're saying, in effect, they said, uh, Labor. Um, don't be taken in with the gas discussion because there's arguments that actually gas has replaced coal as yes the, yes it's another you know fossil fuel yes. and um don't be taken in by this notion of carbon capture and storage you know yielding on carbon capture and storage and they've been pretty i suppose it's an identity marker for them too in a way yeah well i mean the the, the evidence on carbon capture and storage is it's not going to work so you know if 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 you can, if you can give a little on that to the coalition, and they they believe that it is going to work, and it'd be good if it did, but it probably the people don't seem to think it will. Um, the gas is interesting because now you know Angus Taylor and the Prime Minister are promoting gas as a transition fuel, and it has to be said this is a major step forward from where we were with when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister because there's an admission that we need a transition. But gas is destructive both as a fossil fuel, but it's also gas um, extraction and fracking is enormously destructive of agricultural land and communities. And so 
even even without its contribution to the heating of the climate, I think it's an it's the wrong way to go. I mean, why would a country like Australia, with a limited amount of really good agricultural land, wreck it for the t to get a bit of gas out of it? But you know, don't you, that whenever people start talking like this, the the the, the real the specialists will say, "Look, we want to believe that renewables are going to do it, but there's there's still a long way to go and an enormous amount of money involved in doing it at scale." So it's a fantastic yeah. idea, and more than that, you know, it's more than that. But it, the idea that it will replace these is just. Uh, but things have, 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 yeah, I don't agree with that. I mean, things have moved very fast, and it's now much, much cheaper. And you know, look, if there was a will, then then resources and research could be put into making the renewables work, because if you look at. Um, what they're proposing with with these 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 little gas mines over over agricultural land, I find it that's something which I find really shocking. Um, I looked at the artesian basin and so on. The artesian basin, the destruction of the land, the wrecking of communities, and 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 what's interesting here is that this is this is going into areas with farming families. These are the this is the heart of our notion of Australia more than coal miners are. I think I find it. I have a real visceral reaction when I see those maps um, and see what it does to the to the landscape. Okay, now I was on a webinar today uh, from the ANU, and they were talking about whether uh, we might be able to say use government procurement um, as uh, tie it to the development of certain manufacturing potential yeah, if you know what yeah. i mean in australia so that would be a very that would be a, an intervention uh, from government uh hopefully not of the sort of old um you know protectionist style but obviously maybe an element of that do you do you like that idea do you see a role for government in prompting some of this development you're talking about well i mean that's the sort of thing that used to happen where, where governments did think they needed to be supporting to su supporting Australian industries and Australian manufacturing. And they, um, it, under neoliberalism, it was put aside because it might make it slightly more expensive for government. And then they'd say, well, that's more expensive for the taxpayer, so we shouldn't do that. So I think that, you know, that was a, that's something which it's great that it's being looked at again, because I think there's, there's an openness now to looking at a wider range of things. Because I think people feel, we have made to realise Australia is pretty vulnerable without mm. any manufacturing capacity, and perhaps tax, governments paying a little more for some of the goods that they buy, um, if it makes us less vulnerable, might be something taxpayers are prepared to wear. Well, that will be a very interesting discussion, won't it? Because yes, also I think so. About the need for certain sacrifices, which I found fascinating uh, in this discussion, I thought, yes, well, how will we define sacrifice? You know, and who will do the sacrificing? <laughs> yes, <laughs> very interesting political argument. Um, yeah. So. Look, I think I will actually. I'll, I'll, I'll one more question before I go to our questions. Thank you. Um, so, do, are you sh are you sure you're not another sort of chorus of doom, as it were, and saying, "Look, let's think again." But actually, the next stage is something that you find difficult to grapple with. Is it just such a wicked problem? Uh, uh, well, I suppose I'd say on that that look, what I saw my main task as doing in the in in the quarterly essay is tracing. A cut some threads, both in terms of economics and politics, to how we got to where we were. 
rather than being a prophet, you know, that, and, and, and a policy advisor. It was to try to say, to, to help people understand the backstory of, of our economy, um, to help them understand why our economy has got the shape it has, that it's got a long history, to see how that had interacted with, with our political leaders and, and the various moments of, of decision and crisis. That, that's what I saw as the main task of what I was doing. Mm. Um, so, I mean, so I don't see myself as giving policy advice in a way. Um, Do you except- see, is the next stage, could it be exciting? You know, does it rev you up? <laughs> no, well, I mean, no, no, I know. I mean, I am so, I am like, I think very many people of, um, of my age, um, not just of my age, I mean, very many people really, really worried about um, about what's happening with the, the heating of the planet and feel that and, and hope that there will that the world will make a really big commitment to decarbonize but Australians need to realize that if it does that is going to actually we are quite vulnerable our economy is quite vulnerable and we, we I mean we're vulnerable to the heat to the heating planet but also we've we've allowed ourselves to become quite dependent on the export of fossil fuels so we need to think quite hard about what else we're going to do if we can't sell coal and gas because the rest of the world doesn't want to buy it anymore because it's actually realizing that you know we have to seriously change um the the structures of our of our um, of our industrial economies yes it is so pretty huge we might find ourselves very much near senegal and pakistan that's i suppose the real worry now can i ask max hanlon who was first up to just unmute himself please and ask a question can max do that no, he can't. I'm getting because um, I can't see his question, Christine. I'm just but, sort of. So I've sent it to you in the chat function there, Jordine. So uh, it won't ask... work. It won't work. The chat function will not work when I press it. It does not work. So you might have to. Okay, let me read it out to you. You read it out. <laughs> uh, what about the impact of vested interests which influence politicians and resulted in the policies adopted by government? Judith, did you okay. hear that? Yes, I did. Um, and that's one of the things that I try to show in the, in the book, is, or the, or the essay, is the, the way in which mining and then particularly fossil fuels actually worked very hard to infiltrate government. I mean, in relation to fossil fuels, I think we can talk there for a while, particularly under the Howard government and under the Abbott government of state capture. And that means, you know, they, they have their people, if you like, or people who, who, who believe their story in, in the offices of the Prime Minister and the Minister for Resources. And, and, and so I think, yes, you're, you're spot on. Um, but, you know, if, 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 if we know um, and, it's, and it's revealed, I think it makes it easier for, for other people to know what they're dealing with. I just wish there were others um, in the room as well. You know, that's what yeah. I keep waiting for. And it's long been noted that, that gas, for instance, has always believed it, it never was ne- not nearly as good at selling its message. It's got a bit better lately. But I think, you know, that uh, the um, renewables industry, they, I don't think they're not good at this yet. 
Well, it's it's whether or not they're 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 listened to. I mean, if you look at look at the COVID commission that Scott Morrison has appointed, there's two representatives there, two people there very close to the gas industry. There's nobody really from the services industry, which is where most of us work. Um, there's nobody from edu higher education, which was our I think our fourth third, biggest export third, fourth, third yeah. biggest mm -hmm. biggest export earner. Um, there's certainly nobody from the environmental movement who can speak on behalf of that. I mean, our ideal, you know, the ideal one has of a government is, is that it listens to a range of interests and then comes to some sort of balanced view. And, but actually, when we look at our energy policy and we look at other policies, it's, it's as if the fossil fuel lobbyists have been the only people in the room. And, mm. you know, and, and I think that that COVID commission, uh, I mean, I don't think... It's hard to know with Morrison, but I don't think he's as, as ideological and driven as, sort of, as somebody like Abbott was. But I don't think that, that that commission was well thought through. It's it's too narrow, I think. All right. Well, let's see. And Susan Mountford has also asked, you might have to translate that again, Christine. Okay. If there could be a bipartisan alliance around coal and gas and renewables, where do you see the Greens being able to contribute? given their role in voting down the initiatives in the Rudd years? Yes, now that um, was an unfortunate thing, but the Greens would say that actually they were then, under Julia Gillard, they were very cooperative and that they made a positive contribution to the development of, what was hers called, the, what, the, carbon ta the carbon price, the price on carbon. So the I would... Pollution reduction scheme. <laughs> yeah, that's right, the carbon <laughs> pollution reduction scheme. Uh, so in a way, you know, yes, they did not play a very constructive role under Rudd, but they, they played a pretty constructive role um, under Gillard. So I would say, you know, that I think I would see them as, as trying to make a constructive contribution to, and to be the voice of, 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 a, of, ta well, of basically, you know, taking climate change much more seriously. I mean, I, what, you know, we, we've had this pandemic hit us in the face and I'm hoping it might make people realise that actually bad things happen. You know, we can't just keep going along imagining that bad things are not going to happen. And um, bad things are, are going to happen if the climate keeps heating in the way it is. Well, if the bushfires don't at least spark some form of, of rethinking, whatever you think, it, I think it did provoke enormous yes. shock. And I think yes. the business community, you know, seemed to me anyway, to really take a message that it wasn't business as usual. So, um, again, I suppose it's that question of who makes this a really sexy argument, you know, and really personalises it. Maybe that's what partly, you know, that's what um, uh, Hugh, um, the man you, the two men you were talking about from years ago. But yeah, but they just, they, 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 their aim was to just work on the elites yes. and, and make sure they didn't, you know, make sure, make sure they were on side, um, I think. So I don't know why you think it has to be a sexy argument. Oh, because, <laughs> well, because I think that somehow or other changing minds in Australia and believing that we have the potential to be a, a big power in, say, in renewable energy, you know, even like people like Mike, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar from Atlassian are talking about building that $18 billion pipeline to Singapore yeah. to supply. Yeah. People, people sort of are excited and they say, oh, but look, that's not doable. 
so but that doesn't matter what people in the suburbs think if they do it it'll be terrific and then people will say that's great so you think it starts with the elites you yes think- i think i do think that i think a lot of this has to be elite led um they're the only people i mean with the cap- capital and capacity i mean and it's interesting that you mentioned businesses response to the to the um to the fires because my sense in reading it over the when i you know was writing this over the last six months is that there's a lot businesses shifting much faster than our political class is shifting mm. there's a lot more of you know and capital is shifting too. Capital is saying, well, don't know whether we want to invest in gas because we really don't know long-term. It's very expensive capital, you know, capital investment. We only get our returns back if it's there for a long time. Maybe it won't be, mm. you know, that, so it's shifting and our politicians are lagging at the moment. That's why it somehow reminds me a bit of the early sixties when Donald Horn wrote the lucky country, when we had, you know, the Edwardian Menzies as our Prime Minister and the world was shifting fast around issues of race um, and we and, and our political leaders were sticking fast to the white Australia policy. I feel as if there's something a bit similar happening now. Well, who's going to be the, yeah, the Donald Horn? I mean, maybe it's you. <laughs> no, well, it's more who's going to be Gough Whitlam. Is really, you know. Oh, well, that's another very big question. Okay, to my, is it Michael Jonathan? Uh, uh, can you try and bring his question to us, Chris? I, I can. I think this we've got time for one very last question here, and it's going to come. Oh, now I've got to find it. From I've got one here from Peter Doyle. We'll do this one okay. here. Having spent 30 years of my 35-year career in coal mining, I'm continually offended that large multinational companies talk about uh, hell coal power plants in Australia but never invest in this tech to try and maintain a future in this country. The tide has gone out for them and they've never managed to prevent it. Have you got any comments, Judith? No, I mean, so the tide's gone out? The newest coal-fired power plants are at least 20 years old and many are over 50. Mm. So he's talking about the age, I guess. Yes, and, yeah. and, and, and in a way that's right. I mean, and so that, nobody wants to invest in Australia in a new coal-fired power station. That's the truth. And so investment is looking, moving, looking towards renewables, but we haven't had a proper... We need, you know, the federal government has to have a proper energy policy there for that to happen and so if we just have the tide going out on on coal-fired power plants and without the new investment we're in trouble so i mean and that's in a sense been the cost of the the fossil fuel lobby's incredible success in capturing first the howard and then the abbott government and then the national party such that you know they they rolled abbott um they rolled turnbull on this you know it's been a i think it's been a disaster Look, thank you. Maybe a sort of final thoughts then for people who uh, may be listening, because when we we also will put this to Aaron Saturday Extra, who really can't imagine uh, their working life and their family lives in whether it's Western Australia, the Hunter Valley or North Queensland without this central fact of coal, which they've become extremely used to. And it's such an amazing set of traditions around it. How, How do you speak to them how do you attract well, them with I the mean, idea that there is more on offer in australia you know john quiggins just written a paper on this i mean there has to be transitions put in place for communities but 
we used to have, I live in a suburb of Northcote and I'm surrounded by um, factories that were once full of migrant women making shoes and clothes. And so, you know, the yeah, jobs... And migrant it, women, of course, getting back to your gender. Yes, yes, you know, and, and now, okay, they're in big cities and it's, it, it's, it's always much harder, I think, when you're talking about jobs that are, that are, that are in regional communities. But Britain is, I mean, Britain is managing to get along without coal miners. So, you know, like these, we don't have a whole lot of people breeding horses, many people breeding horses as we did in the 19th century. I just, you know, it, yes, that's, that's it, but, but we're not talking about very many people. I think that's what we have to keep realising. Um, it's because they're geographically concentrated, they be, it becomes linked to communities. It's very similar arguments that get made about, about timber, timber towns and timber workers in, in, in Victoria, that they can keep on chopping down old growth forests because otherwise, you know, what are they going to do? Well, mm. I just don't, I, I value, I have to say, the continuation of the old growth forests. And I would be quite happy as a taxpayer to have them funded generously for retraining or... Um, given early retirement um, or other or you know for, for government subsidies to help to help with that I just don't think we can't the planet can't afford to keep on mining and burning coal and that's what we have to confront and they have to confront that too well thank you very much indeed <laughs> I hope that uh, we I hope well, you certainly haven't terrified. I was going to say, I hope you haven't terrified the people who are sort of reliant on it and that you've challenged them. You certainly challenged me. So, uh, Professor Judith Brett, thank you very much indeed for joining us and congratulations on the quarterly essay. Thank you very much, Geraldine. And unfortunately, she can't sort of sign it. So it, it is called The Coal Curse, Resources, Climate and Australia's Future. It's out now from Schwartz Media and Black Ink uh, is uh, collaborating. So... Um, I'll leave you to all go along to your, to your readings and other stores and, um, uh, you know, buy to your heart's content. And uh, can I just take a little moment on behalf of Black Ink, on behalf of Radio National, on behalf of Readings, to thank you, Geraldine Duke, for your wonderful questions and your interviews of Judith Breath. What a treat it was to listen to you both tonight. Thank you. On behalf of everyone out here in Zoom land, you two are bloody marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that. Bye-bye. <laughs> Good, Good night. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.